Welcome to Cool Explorations. I am your host, Tony Peters. Today we're going to be taking a look at The Case for Jesus as Christ and Lord. It's going to be from Mike O'Dowd's book, The Gospels. And uh, we'll be t- looking at uh, Acts 2, 22-36. And uh, in the-, the Cool Explorations podcast is recorded in partnership with Impact Canada Ministries. This we're going to be taking a look at the fact that as Christians we believe that Jesus Christ is the predicted Messiah, God's Son, but when confronted with the why, we often struggle to explain that. By looking at Acts 2, 22-36 and the supporting scriptures, we actually have the information right at our fingertips. We need to dig into the Bible and pray for God's guidance in our reading so that we can defend our faith and stand with conviction uh, with Jesus and say that he is the Christ the Messiah, and the Lord of Lords. Imagine one's reaction when you discover that your sin led to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the Son of God himself. It's a reaction that some 3,000 souls had after Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. Pentecost Sunday is the day the church celebrates God's creation of the church. And Acts 2 covers the heart of the message in the very first sermon, preaching by the church on that day some 2,000 years ago. The 12 apostles, along with more than 100 other disciples of Jesus, had been waiting in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit as Jesus promised, and the Spirit filled them in magnificent fashion accompanied by a sound like a mighty rushing wind and the sight of divided fiery fiery tongues resting on each of them and with the spirit in them as they were promised they proclaimed the wonders of god's mighty works in a diversity of languages unfamiliar to themselves but understood by a crowd of devout jews who spoke a diversity of native languages because they had come from around the Roman Empire to attend the festival of Pentecost. These Jews were drawn to the sound of the wind, amazed by a message each heard in their own native language, as if God were announcing the reversing of the curse of Babel by the inauguration of his church, and then they were drawn to Peter as he addressed with them, the good news, the explanation for what they were seeing and hearing. In today's study, we're going to take a look at the heart of Peter's Pentecost sermon that commences God's new direction in his plan of salvation, bringing salvation to the world in and through his church. And how does he choose to begin? Through his servant Peter, and with a logical and compelling case, the case for Jesus as Christ and Lord, which begins with God's own endorsement. When we take a look at this, we can see that not only does Jesus go up into the clouds in a wondrous sight, but he's followed by a heavenly host of angels. To top that off, God endorses his son. His disciples now have the Holy Spirit to guide them and the young church. They have an immense task ahead of them, in bringing the message of Christ to all nations. They could not have done this without the conviction that their faith was placed in the true Messiah. 
we too need this conviction of the truth of our faith. In Acts 2.22, Peter begins with the heart of his sermon. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Christ or Messiah is not part of Jesus' name, but rather it is a title Jesus takes on as one who fulfills and accomplishes the works of the Messiah, according to the Old Testament scriptures. Knowing his Israelite audience, Peter knew that for these men to embrace Jesus as their Messiah, he would have to make the case that Jesus had the right to the title Messiah because he accomplished the works of the Messiah. The key word in this verse is attested. A technical word used in the culture of the day to describe the endorsement of a public office holder, which is why in the New Living uh, translation it translates it here that God publicly endorsed Jesus. Peter's point to his Jewish audience is that the miraculous works, wonders, and signs of the Messiah were done in their midst in accordance with the scriptures, and they knew it. In other words, God has not failed to make the case for Jesus as Messiah. You have failed to perceive and receive it. Having established this fact, Peter now puts his, his audience under conviction by driving home the point of their guilt and shame with the added fact of the consequences of their guilt. Peter began his ministry by making a case for Jesus as the Messiah. He followed Christ's example of taking the message to the Jewish nation first. Knowing with whom he was speaking, he knew exactly where he needed to turn to in scriptures to make the points he needed. And following his example, we should know where to go with the, our own convictions. We should know where to turn in the Bible, who to turn to, to get advice, to get, excuse me, to get advice and to pray so that we know the words to speak to our audience. When we continue on in verse 23, Peter pulls no punches in telling these men of Israel, this Jesus delivered up according to the def de uh, definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Remember, this is a crowd of devout Jews from across the Roman Empire who are likely also present in Jerusalem during the week leading up to Christ's crucifixion. They're not the religious leaders. They're not the people who gave the orders or drove the nails. Yet Peter ascribes their guilt in the manner to them, along with the lawless men who did the dirty work, a reference to the Gentile Romans who carried out the act. Christ's death on the cross, Peter says here, was not an accident. It was the purposeful work of God according to his will to die for the sake of sinful man because of our sinful nature. It was God's will for the Messiah to suffer on our behalf because he loves us and desires that we be saved from his justifiable wrath against us because of our sin. 
Jesus isn't just the man these Jews and lawless men crucified. Jesus is the man we too crucified according to God's will. But if Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, promised through the Old Testament scriptures, then his death could not have been the end of his works because as Peter says in verse 24, it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter must have really ruffled some feathers in throwing the accusation of responsibility for killing the foretold Messiah. He knew that his message would also have the attended, the intended effect of forcing them to take action. They had to make a choice. They had to believe that Jesus is the Messiah of the prophecy or reject it. Either way, the guilt of his death, despite being innocent of any guilt worthy of crucifixion, was on their heads and on our heads, for we are all guilty of sinning against our Heavenly Father. In the message, Eugene Peterson puts verse 24 in a wonderful way. God united and untied the death ropes and raised him up. Death was no match for him. In verse 24, Peter gives the first hint in his sermon about the true identity of the Christ. You can imagine his audience beginning to think, who has the power to overcome death? Can a mere man do this? But Peter couldn't just declare that Jesus was resurrected and was therefore the Christ. He had to make the case that the Old Testament scriptures taught that resurrection was a work of the Christ, in part because it is a vital part of the Christ's work, but also because it was not well understood among the Jews. We see Jesus dealing with this lack of faith and understanding after his resurrection in Luke 24. On the day of his resurrection, Jesus joins two disciples on their lengthy walk from Jerusalem to a village called Emmaus. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. Apologize if I'm not. And he sees that they're distraught because they believe Jesus was the Christ, and now he, in their minds, is crucified, dead, and buried. In response to this, the risen Jesus tells these two men, O foolish ones, and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things to and enter his glory? Luke 24, 25-26. That phrase, enter his glory, refers to Jesus' resurrection and subsequent ascension back in uh, into heaven. Jesus gently chastises these men for not understanding what the scriptures taught about the Christ. And Luke goes on to write, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's Luke 24 verse 27. Here in Acts 2, Peter more concisely makes his case through a logical argument from Psalm 16, a psalm written by David. Peter quotes from it in verses 25 to 27, with the key verse being verse 27. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. 
In verses 29 to 31, Peter then applied the psalm to the Christ. His reasoning was straightforward. In verse 29, he makes the logical point that it is well known that David died, so the psalm could not apply to him. And so Peter concludes in verses 30 to 31, The psalm is a prophecy of David intended for his descendants who would rule on David's throne as Christ, as God promised David in 2 Samuel verse 7. But not just any descendant. God promised David this descendant would sit upon his throne and rule forever over his kingdom. Therefore, the Christ would have to be a descendant who fulfilled the words of David in verse 27 by not being abandoned in the grave or suffering the decay of death, the one who conquered the grave through resurrection to eternal life. That is Peter's case for the Christ, and it mu- that Christ must be resurrected. Now all that remained was the proof. Peter had to provide the proof that Jesus was resurrected, and he does so in verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, of that we all are witnesses. The apostles met all the Old Testament requirements for a reliable testimony as witnesses. They had more than the required numbers and prerequisite character. Notice back in Acts 1, 21-22 that Peter, in acting to replace Judas among the ranks of the apostles, sets the requirement for the replacement. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the times that the Lord Jesus went in and out amongst us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. From the scriptures, Peter made the case to these men of Israel that Christ had to be resurrected and that Jesus was the Christ not only on the basis of God's endorsement in their midst through his mighty works, wonders, and signs, but because of the mightiest of these works, his resurrection that overcame the power of death. But again, what kind of man must the Christ be if he possesses such power? Peter has one more point to make. Peter proves that Christ's conquering of death by providing witnesses was something his audience could not ignore. At this point, they would have been questioning everything they were taught by their Jewish leaders. They were being presented with a strong case for Jesus being the Christ whom death could not contain. They were being shown in their own scripture proof from the prophets that Jesus checked all the boxes of the long-awaited Messiah. Now the choice was theirs to make, just as the choice is ours to make. In verse 36, Peter says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know, for certain, that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified, Jesus is Lord as well as Christ. Notice how Peter once again makes the case from the scriptures 
before he makes this assertion. He uses another psalm of David, Psalm 110, to make the case that the Christ is not merely a man, just as Jesus used this psalm for the same purpose in Mark 12:35-37. Both Peter and Jesus make the point from Psalm 110 that the Christ isn't just a man. He is Lord. And they use the same verse Peter quotes in verse 34. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. This is an exalted position at the right hand of God that Jesus ascended to as Peter points out in verse 33. But now instead of appealing to himself and the other apostles as witnesses, Peter appeals to everyone who saw and heard the miraculous outpouring of the Spirit as witnesses to his assertion that Jesus is Lord. Look back in verses 17 to 18 where Peter is quoting from the prophet Joel to explain the outpouring of the Spirit the crowd is witnessing. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even in my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. In Joel's prophecy, it is God who pours out the Holy Spirit. And in verse 33, Peter declares it is the ascended and exalted Jesus who has poured out the Spirit, Jesus the Christ, the Lord, as Peter says in verse 36. And having made his case for Jesus as Christ and Lord, Peter comes back to where he started at the end of verse 36. This Jesus whom you crucified, can you imagine the effect of that? You crucified the Christ. You crucified the Lord. Can you imagine the horror of being an unjust executioner? I suspect these men would embrace deliverance from their guilt, shame, and the consequences of their action if such a deliverance were possible. But then again, maybe that deliverance was the good news Peter had in mind all along. Once again, we see Peter quote scripture that everyone in his Jewish audience would have known. Yet more proof of Jesus being exactly who he claimed to be, the Son of God sent to save us all. Then he slams them with the fact that they killed Jesus. They were responsible for the death of God's son. We too bear this blame. Thankfully, the story does not end with Jesus dying. He rose again, providing hope for us all. These were Peter's words in his sermon in Acts 2.21 before he made his case for Christ. Peter made this elaborate case for Jesus as the Christ and the Lord because he was seeking to convince them. Although their sins against God brought this terrible and necessary tragedy of Jesus' crucifixion to pass, even so, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus was crucified for our sakes will be saved. If you continue to read in verse verses 37 to 41, you'll see the response of many to Peter's sermon. The message cut them to the heart. Does it also cut to your heart? 
3,000 of the crowd embraced the salvation God freely gives to those who call upon Jesus to save them from the consequences of their sin. Consequences so grave that they led to God having to sacrifice his one and only son in a cruel crucifixion to save us uh, from them. Are you a name and a face in the crowd like this who needs to call on the name of the Lord Jesus? This is your invitation. Call on him today. Peter's case demands action. Take up your cross and follow Jesus Christ. Share his message with the world. Choose to follow Jesus, God's own son, today. Thank you for listening to Cool Explorations. Today we took a look at Acts 2.22-36 and we can see from what we've looked at that we must admit our sinful nature, we must confess our sins and guilt, and ask that we be washed clean and made new in Christ. We need to repent and rip off the sin nature that ensnares humanity, live free in Christ, feel the amazing power of the wonderful God we worship and adore, call on the Abba Father, the one who will never leave or abandon you, take hope in the confidence of the truth of Jesus, the Christ and Lord of Lords. If you would like to reach me for any reason, you can do so at tpeters745 at gmail.com.